Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. My guest on Talk Design today are the design duo that make up Dust architecture. Now, these guys do some absolutely beautiful work. Like, it's really simple, it's really pared back, but it's so elegant and so complex without looking complex. Um, I'd love to welcome you guys to the show. Cad and Jesus, welcome to Talk Design. This is going to be a fun one. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks, Adrian. We're, we're pleased to be here. Yeah, no, really excited to have you guys here. I've been a long-time admirer of your work. And I did have the pleasure of meeting you both in uh, Texas last year. Was it last year? Yeah, it was. Sure. It was last year. Yeah. Yeah, right before, right before, before the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In, um, in El Paso. And yeah. uh, that was an experience for me as well, going to El Paso. Because... Um, <laughs> I'd never been before and I didn't really know what to expect. And I had the pleasure of flying up there uh, in a private little plane, which was a, a propeller plane with a friend of mine from Austin. And uh, so we flew up and we had to do fuel stops on the way and all those kind of things. And then yeah. land at that great big El Paso airport. That was pretty crazy in this little <laughs> Piper Cherokee. <laughs> so nice. yeah. I was on an adventure for sure. Yeah. That's so, a fun. Go. I said it's a fun. We had a good time there. That that event was it was a pleasure. It was. You know? I found it really fascinating. You know, especially because they showed us so much of what um, El Paso was, and we got that really beautiful history down in the bottom of town there. And then I couldn't believe the amount of mid-century stuff there was there, um, mm. and even the buildings in town, like incredible like incredible and then to to kind of go from that to some of that last work that was sort of like you know really really at the top end of i suppose luxury homes and modernist style you know like really big 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 dollars and in every every moment of them and big sort of monuments of of uh, houses that was yeah. that was kind of funny actually the the guy I, who i went up with was tim brown and you may remember the house that uh, had the glass bedroom walls, and it was on the ten, uh, on the uh, golf course, and it had the, the the timber doors and the glass bedroom walls, and then the other glass. And Tim and I, we went, God, that's that's clever. That I really like that idea. And then we were walking out, and we said, Who's going to use it first? Like this, and I'm like, I'm going to draw it as soon as I get home. I'm going <laughs> to draw it into a project. And uh, anyway, about. Oh, probably about six or eight months ago. Tim says, have you got that in a project yet? And I said, I've drawn it three times, haven't got there with it yet like this. And he's like, I just got it in. I just got it in. <laughs> it's been our little competition to see who could <laughs> use the idea first. Awesome. It's a bit of fun. Yeah, a bit of fun <laughs> for sure. So anyway, enough about that. Um, tell me like, and, and do it separately if you would, tell me just your background and and you know, out of all the crazy things that you could choose in life, you know, you, you chose architecture and 
Then we'll talk about how the two of you ended up doing it together, unless that collides really early in your story. Um, so I don't know who wants to kick it off. One of you can, but <laughs> both of you at once then. Um, yeah, go for it. Just tell us that right from the, from the early point when you went, oh, this is what it is and what, what motivated you towards it. I think uh, for me, I had a I had an idea when I was probably in kindergarten or first grade wow. that I wanted to be an architect. And it was one of those things where the teacher has you write, what do you want to be when you grow up? You put it in an envelope and you open it in the end of the year. And, you know, honestly, I don't know what that was. No one in my family was an architect. Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't socially even know of any architects or parents that were. And um, it was something that I don't know where I got it from. And my mom used to joke all the way through, even up to college and deciding, like I was sticking to it. I took drafting classes in high school. I was picking a university that had an architectural program. Still no idea what it is, really. Um, and my mom's like, you're going to change your mind. You're, she always tells me, you're going to change your mind. And Here we are that many years later. And you're still looking for what it is you're going to change your mind to. <laughs> still figuring out what it is to be an architect probably that's you know probably, that's probably the better answer to that isn't it it's like yeah what does it really mean yeah, yeah. wow that would be um if that was me it would have been that i was just being a smart ass and trying to think of something the teacher wouldn't have known um what it meant <laughs> but <laughs> even at that age probably but yeah that's a that's an interesting one because basically you you programmed yourself the whole way and so everything at some point led to trying to answer the question of what is an architect? Yeah. It is. And I think still to this, to this day. And, you know, I grew up, I was born just south of here in yeah. Fort Huachuca, Arizona. Both my parents were in the army. Okay. Um, and then after, after I was born, they moved to Southern California for a little bit, Los Angeles and the, the greater LA area. Uh, a little bit in Northern California. Then they moved to Texas and they were, um, so I went to high school in Texas and from there went to university in Lubbock, Texas, Texas Tech. Yeah. And that's yeah. in West Texas. And so that, that's where I met Kate in, in undergrad there. Um, and even, even departing there with a master's degree, still questioning what it is to be an architect. So I, I had went out west to California through Arizona um, and was looking for construction jobs. And so I was mainly kind of hanging up like, okay, I did architecture studies for six years. Um, now I'm going to work construction to kind of better understand uh, the build side. And I probably hovered in and out of that probably four years, five years. Wow. Yeah. Uh, which, which all then sort of, timing wise and and skill wise led to to us starting dust and and sort of taking on our own builds right away mm -hmm. <laughs> that's that's really cool especially um you know going and doing the construction side because uh, so often people think they know that already just from what they study mm. Cade, what about you, man? Well, man, it's it's funny. Um, 
I, ha I have a similar story, which is probably hard to believe. But when I was a kid, I think the, the thing I remember most is that art, art, whatever I thought art was in my small town, I grew up three hours um, from El Paso. So El Paso is the big city. So you sort of saw my neck of the woods. I was about as... to say, we went home for you almost. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, so I'm very fond of, of that area and the region, but it's the Chihuahuan Desert. My grandfather was a farmer and my parents, you know, they lived in a small town. Um, my dad did various things and my mom just worked in, an, in a hospital. But for some some avenue of my my being was always drawn to drawing and art. But somewhere along the line, I, and at a very young age, I think I was telling my grandmother, I'm going to be an architect. My grandmother read uh, constantly, and she would always give me these Frank Lloyd Wright books. But as a, a little kid, <laughs> you're looking at houses, it's kind of boring, you know? I don't, yeah. I don't know. So my avenue was more art-based. And then at university, I actually, you know, it, it kind of just like dissipated. It wasn't that I was constantly saying this it was like i remember saying it as a little kid and then you know off to college i'm gonna be a doctor but i was so bored with the pre-science stuff um after two years of school uh in las cruces i decided to to give it a shot still not knowing what architecture was but like coming back to that dream starting to draw again and you know that was the thing i was missing was there's this point of creativity and I always said there's a few things that probably kept me alive as a, as a young teenager was uh, playing soccer uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and art. And um, I, I had really two options because of finances. I landed in, in Lubbock, Texas. Um, and uh, after the first year of school, I still almost quit architecture because I, I was not finding the inspiration, I guess. Yeah. Okay. I, had a, I had a couple of hours of conversation with a, a, the, the drafting professor. And she was like, go to art, be an artist. Because she was an art major. And so I said, I'm going to give it one more. I'm going to give it one more semester and see how that goes. And I had this amazing professor who worked with Mario Bota and moved to, to West Texas to, to study and research Donald Judd. Then later introduced us to Marfa and Jesus worked with them and we're still friends and, and that changed everything. Um, you know, and five years later we met, we met in, in that, in that art class, in I that think. art class. Yeah. yeah. Painting, painting, <laughs> painting pre-computer. So, um, yeah, Cade, Cade was the, uh, premier painter artist in that he had the skills that, that our professor was like, you all should be painting like Cade. Yeah, yeah like, like Cade's the man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's setting the benchmark here, guys. <laughs> and, and she, you know, she kindly would be like, and and Jesus, you're you're good too. You know, you're you definitely don't stay within the lines. Um, a little more free, carefree. <laughs> I like your loosen uh, up yeah. a little, Jesus. Loosen yeah. up some. <laughs> yeah. Feel your painting. Feel your painting. Yeah. <laughs> So you could, both could have ended up artists, except that, you know, Jesus, you'd said you were going to be an architect, so you didn't have a choice. You just had to keep walking down the path. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 
So what uh, that? Okay. Sorry. I said even at the end of school, I, I took a jewelry class and was like, damn, I could have done this way more fun. <laughs> <laughs> architecture architecture school is so serious. It's so, you know, it's so it seems serious to me anyway. But art was like, you can do whatever you want. Fancy. Well, that's the great freedom, isn't it? It, it yeah. is the great freedom of it. I mean, I'm, I'm not an architect, so I, I've never studied it. And I went and did um, a, uh, well, I've studied it, but not, not formally. Um, I went and did a masterclass with Glenn Merker. And um, you're in this room for you know, a week with you know, Peter Stutchbury and, and so on and so on. And, um, and everybody in the room, bar one other guy, was an architect. And, uh, and the other guy was a builder. And anyway, um, I'm going, yeah, it, it's so serious. And I got the, the gravity of what it was about, but it was, um, I don't know, there was a, yeah, there was a depth of self-seriousness in it. I want to say self-importance. It wasn't self-importance. It was, it was self-seriousness. It was like, and... I, I remember walking um, with Stutchbury, like uh, walking around this great big field and we were talking and we were, you know, partly talking shit and then partly talking about this massive field, you know, and um, Peter's sort of like, he's pretty quiet, but he's got this, he's got this side that's just, just underneath him that's waiting to play up, you know, like he, he's waiting to, unleash the fun <laughs> and uh it, it's like he's, he's kind of got his architect persona and then he's got this piece under here that's like just if we let this this beast out and of course i'm spending all my time trying to pull the beast out um and i'm trying to bottle my own beast you know like but it was really interesting because on the architecture side it was um and we're just looking observing land and observing what's happening on it um that was really mind-blowing um mm -hmm. and i i thought i was good at observing land but just you know the, the way he looked at it was just a whole new way for me as well so i really enjoyed that but there was a real seriousness to it which architecture you know thank god it has it because otherwise we'd be um, making things that didn't last didn't right. matter and there's enough of that going on already you know yeah, right. somebody's got to put that benchmark up there um that you know, everybody strives for. Interesting mm -hmm. that um, that piece with Frank Lloyd Wright. So your grandmother knew that he, who he was clearly and mm -hmm. um, that there was an influence of him. And I suppose within the, within the kind of area as well, not quite in the area, but within the area. Mm -hmm. And so did you ever go and visit any of it back then or, or was it just talked about in, in books? No, I think the same thing for me. I actually didn't even know what it meant. I had no clue even going to architecture school what 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 it meant, what it was. I didn't I never drew a building in my life other than like a two-point perspective, like a house, right? Yeah, sure. So I think my my lens on architecture, I was in Boy Scouts as a kid, and it was really discovering ruins of indigenous people. That was my lens on the interest of this sort of built there was a, where I grew up is, is, is a small town called Carlsbad. It's on the Pecos river. Uh, and again, you know, it was a farming town, but it's also mining. Um, 
and oil. And so architecture, you know, there's an architect in town and maybe some interesting buildings, but it wasn't, there wasn't anything remarkable that we could say, hey, you go, you go and this is going to inspire you or, and, and we didn't have a lot of money and we didn't travel a lot. So there wasn't, there wasn't a feeding of that interest. Yeah. You know? There was a feeding of, of drawing and art, but I had no idea. So no, I hadn't, I hadn't been to a, a Frank Lloyd Wright building until I was out of architecture school, to be honest. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then in school, I was still disinterested. Yeah, you were a doctor. You were going to be a doctor. Well, at some point, yeah. you were going to be a doctor. Yeah. Even in architecture, I was like, I'm just so tired of hearing that guy's name, man. Yeah. <laughs> you want to shut up about Frank? Shut <laughs> up. Who cares? Let's look at something else. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, something that came up when you were just saying that was um, about the oil and the mining was when I was talking to Tom Kundig was, you know, he grew up in that area where there was lots of um, exploration or mining work and, you know, milling work and all that and how much it influences even his thoughts on architecture today. Like that's how he, that's where he plays from that mm -hmm. hot rods and, um, you know, the, the sort of stitched together thing. And he sort of says, you know, like, Give me the ugliest place you can find. And I, I, I want to work on that one. I don't want to start with a pretty space. I want to start with a, an ugly old building or an ugly this or whatever, because that's when I really get to play. And mm -hmm. does that, um, do you think that influence of the, you know, that mining and stuff plays back into um, what you do today? Is it part of it or is it, or is it more driven by the indigenous culture um, places that you see? Because I, when you say that and you, I think of your guys' work, I go, hmm. Yeah, I think it's both. I mean, my dad was a welder um, and my, my uncles were in construction and I worked some construction. So I think there's that influence for sure. And then just seeing sort of this, the byproduct of what the oil and mining industry is, even you know, if it's a mining to surface buildings or you know, just a visual landscape, even in Lubbock, Texas, where we went to school, you know, that's, that's farmland and there's grain silos and mm -hmm. sort of this agricultural industrial aesthetic certainly has an influence. And I'd say, you know, it, it all blends together. I don't know sure. that. You know, I, yeah. I think we often talk about that cultural aspect of where we are from, from West Texas to Arizona about, you know, even even aesthetics like the rancher aesthetic or the or the agricultural farm aesthetic and and a, an economy of means and a resourcefulness culturally, right? To so what what would a rancher do? Is sort of a thing we we often talk about. I love that economy of means. Um, yeah, and I know. think you know I think it's it's working backwards. I go every now and again in the summers to visit my wife's uh, family farm in, in Nebraska and tinkering around where grandpa had, had built things. And you, you see that economy of means. There was just a, uh, this is all I got. There are five mm -hmm. different screw heads and I'm going to, and they're all different lengths, but they're all quarter 20, but we're all going to, we're, we're going to, you know, yeah. yeah, one's three inches, one's one inch. And, mm -hmm. There becomes a an appreciation, I think, for that way of seeing yeah, the world. I think it um, 
yeah, like you said, an appreciation of that way of seeing the world. It's, it's a way of, um, it, you know, when you said economy of means, it's a way of not wasting things. It's a way of not putting stuff that doesn't need to be beyond where it is um, and being deliberate about your actions, very deliberate about your choices, and you're choosing with what you've got. Not, you know, it's not, not everything is at the, the store down the road. It's because uh, the store down the road might be six hours away or whatever, you know. In New Zealand, they, because um, I'm a Kiwi originally, before I moved to Australia, they, they, uh, they call it Kiwi ingenuity because, you know, New Zealand was tucked at the bottom of the world and whatever came there came on a ship of some kind and you just had to make with what was ever around you. And certainly there's big parts of Australia like that are like that. And I've got friends that are like that, um, you know, that come off farms and stuff and you, you make with what, what there is. And in that, if you've got an artistic um, side to you, you make it artistic while you're making with whatever it is, you know, you, you, you do something, you create the pattern or you create the, the mood. Um, I think that's really, it's a beautiful approach because it, just keeps it simple. And when you were saying before about it, I was thinking, well, that's why all your houses fit with the landscape so much. Because, you know, if it isn't there, it probably doesn't get there kind of thing. You know, it's like yeah. it's, it's got that feel to it anyway. Yeah. We, we also like to think about, you know, the poetry in that pragmatic thinking, mm-hmm. um, you know, just, just feeding off of all of that economy of means and resourcefulness and, what you got and, and, and just pragmatic. And Kate often mentions it like, can it do more than one thing and, and still look good and still function yeah. and be maintainable or, or you know, things yeah. like that. But so, can it do more than one thing? Has it got more than one purpose? Yeah. 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 Good, can good art have good art has more than one meaning? Right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, it's got the artist meaning to start with. And then it's got what everybody wants to, to interpret, you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah, always, always. It, it, it's a really lovely way of looking at it. Go take me back to um, the indigenous um, structures and stuff because in a world where, you know, we've been mainly run over by the Europeans, I suppose, ultimately, um, so much indigenous stuff is, is highly valued um, but not highly valued. <laughs> um, it's uh, if it's historic and it's lasted something, it's it's highly valued, but not necessarily the um, real depth of it or the, the 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 cultural understanding of it. You know, it almost becomes a, a a tourist attraction as opposed to a deeper understanding. Um, I'd love to know what your thoughts around that are and how it influenced you or influences you now. I think, well, growing up in New Mexico, I think that is you kind of nailed it on the head. It, it, it can turn into the tourist attraction easily or, or towns and, yeah. and zoning, you know, they make rules to, to mimic something. And I think as a kid, I always kind of hated it, but it, it is hard. And we talk about this a lot. It's hard to move through this region without engaging in these cultural and material mm-hmm. artifacts. And, and I don't, I don't personally say approach them with sort of 
intellectual, like an archaeologist or a, a cultural, you know, historian. It's it's more out of a intrigue and interest in 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 observing and and really, Yuhani Palazma, you probably know his writing, but he he talks something about ruins of awaken the imagination, and I think when we visit places it's easy to imagine what it was or find interest but then look looking deeper and looking how people cited buildings um, yeah how they, how they were responding to the sun or defense or what the materials they were using and how materials dictated the size of spaces and you know it it just becomes fascinating um, and I think it's something we, we haven't stopped doing individually or, uh, you know, on our, on our, on our work trips, we, st <laughs> we still go travel. We still do it. Yeah. You, you know, like you say, like that, how just, um, you know, what, what they were responding to and we don't have to probably respond to security, anything like they used to have to, but all the other elements that um, come along, um, other than maybe food storage, we, they're still the elements. They're still the things that, you, that that's going to be responded to. But they learned to respond to them for survival. Um, we just, you know, turn on the air conditioning or close the, the blinds on the window or whatever it is, you know, um, which brings a laziness to uh, I think, and maybe maybe less freedom sometimes, it, depending on where you're building. Like if it's an urban block, well it's kind of cited already. You're going to work with what it's cited, but then taking all those rules that um, belong to the environment and translating them um, without just the reliance on, uh, on our abilities, our innovative abilities to just add something to it. You know, with what you were saying earlier about, you know, pairing things back and keeping it simple and um, that, you know, we were talking about, the restraint is the hardest part of something. You know, take something like with, with the structures you do, you know, air conditioning or the, 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 mecha the mechanics or the mechanicized, mechanicalization, is that a word even, um, of a building? You know, like what do you, what, how do you guys play with that? Like what's the, what's the thinking? I mean, I think, I think we're still starting to, to looking at the clues of the environment like pre-industrial age. Pre-air conditioning, how are they responding? Either in an urban, you know, old core Tucson or or El Paso, uh -huh. even all the all the way back to the indigenous structures that that have been here since BC. You know, a long yeah. a long time, and they're finding even longer humans have been migrating through this valley and 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 civilizing and expanding their culture and material culture and. And a lot of it actually is is masonry, I think, from a, a form of masonry, either mud block or, or stone, sure. way from California coast to Texas. And so culturally, you see that, I think, through the generations. Some of that's changing because of the, the post-industrialization of it. But um, we start there. So we try, to, we try to have at least the houses respond or, or any space, try to respond its environment in an honest way. Yeah. In, a in a responsive, responsible way, then, then layer on the systems, and you know, hopefully, and then we're reducing energy costs, or 
it can oh. leverage other other aspects or other lifestyle potentials. Uh, we have two projects right now. Well, one complete at Casa Caldera that it's a little high desert, but it's still it's still southern Arizona. That uh, doesn't have any air conditioning, and so we. What is we, the temperature? What a temperature range does it play in? You can get the diurnal thirty degree shift in the summer. Wow, um, hot! You could still get a hundred degrees. Wow, uh, Fahrenheit in the summer, and um, you know, in the winter is down to maybe a high of fifty, lows yep. into lows in the freezing, and so um, it still gets warm, warm enough that you want to you temperate your body, and so thinking about ventilation and orientation and and mass in the walls and lifestyle and comfort all that comes into play and that one we really had to kind of own up to it because we couldn't put a box that cools you on there and so yeah, right. <laughs> I had to work yeah. go back to the drawing board and go okay we're really working now yeah yeah i think i think since we started though our our we always started with this idea and, and that it's you know the to approach design as a response and a resourcefulness of the place and respect and reverence, we can we can design with the ideas and and the rules of the environment, as you mentioned, that that we're going to try to cool and keep these spaces as cool as possible and allow one to control their body, their temperature for comfort, even if the client doesn't want it or doesn't care. Like that's just that's just the bottom line, and and I think that Casa Caldera was like, I hope we get another client like that, you know, because um, mm -hmm. it's rare, it's rare. Um, and we just completed a project in Texas uh, in Marfa, and and they they originally didn't want air conditioning, but then COVID hit, and they were spending the summer out in Marfa, <laughs> and they said, I think I think we want to throw that in there. Just but everything is about, you know, the, the mass walls and the orientation and the ventilation and, you know, heavy insulation. Yeah. Yeah. But with natural product. Yeah. That, that's yeah. the other thing that backs into this is, um, you know, you can do that um, with all number of things. But like in your materiality, there's, um, there's nowhere to hide uh, much stuff. And um, so talk to me about materiality as well then, because, you, you know, your product is or your um, design is so simplified and, and I want to say raw that, um, yeah, tell me about materiality and what, what, how it works for you and why and all the rest. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I'd say it really comes back to place and, and what, what resources are available. And, and we don't, I think the unfortunate thing is just, you know, to get it out of the way, it's, it's romantic. It's, we're using earth material for most of our built work and, and we are facing more and more that these materials are no longer for every man because they're becoming too expensive. And the moment the moment that industry is built around frame and concrete block and the things you can get at the big box store, yeah. people stop 
using and then we start forgetting these these materials and so they they're becoming boutique and there's fewer and fewer and fewer people as we move forward that are producing say adobe block sure or, you know um and i hope i hope that changes i hope there's some yeah and i think there was maybe one in the 70s but i was i was you know not that was mother birth stuff you know that was yeah. uh yeah yeah um, i i but, find i find that um that materiality piece really really interesting and it's something that i'm digging into lots just in my understanding with you know building biology of things as well because you know in the materiality sits some of our health as well and whether where the structures that we live in are nurturing our health or whether the structures we're living in are you know layering into robbing our health and our own wellness um and obviously, you know, with with the, the structures that a lot of you know your earth structures, they're not they're not taking from you as a from your personal health as as the occupant of the home. Um, but they're probably also adding an awful lot to your um, psychology in the home. Of um, you know, it, it, I love earth structures based on they've got a weight to them they feel like they've come from out of the land um they they kind of make sense they, they i don't know and maybe it's just you know basic caveman dna you know they feel that there's a safety in there that you feel like you're in them you know um and then when you start doing like you guys do where you open them up so much as well then getting this sort of cross flow of being able to be outdoors and indoors in the same structure, I think, uh, and that's something I love about Rick Joy's work as well. Is that same kind of feel of it's it's got this earthiness to it, but it's got more of a modern living to it as well. Um, yeah, I think I think <clears throat> you know the the theory that we're all products of our environment. And- from, from from San Diego to to Texas, we've as Cade's visiting uh, indigenous ruins or even visiting Spanish colonial uh-huh. influences. It's it's a heavy earthen stone um, influence and 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 built environment. And from California to Texas, and each state, Arizona, New Mexico, in between you have these missions that are coming out that are mixing with indigenous cultures and, and you get the Santa Barbara, California mission style. Sure. You, get, you get Arizona, which compared to all the others are a little more austere, a little more minimal, uh, reduced of ornamentation or, or some style. Do you think and that was because of material availability or, you know, I think, I think it was a mixing with indigenous cultures. It, you know, an archaeologist probably correct me on that or anthropologist. But from my point of view, you know, you got a style in California, you got a style in Arizona, you got a definite style in New Mexico. Uh-huh. Um, and then, then when you get in Texas, all those missions are limestone. Mm-hmm. And so it's definitely material of the place. I think it's mixing with um, cultural traditions of, of who was living there. And I think when that's your backyard and your historic environment it makes it all it makes all that much more sense yeah that that's that's how 
we should value that built environment. Um, Industrialization is changing all that, you know, and I think, of course, I think for us to get the Adobe mud brick into everyone's home or into Home Depot, you need to, you need to, you need to convince the industry and, and educate the industry to be able to put that at a value that everyone can afford it. And then, and then maybe you're not losing some of these skills because that, that house, and Kay can speak to this, that house in Marfa, we use a compressed earth block. It's similar to Adobe. Yeah, okay, cool. In a region that Adobe building and making was prevalent just to maybe about 10 years ago or maybe a little longer. And you're still, you're getting generations now that they're masons still, but they're using the eight by eight concrete block, right? Yeah, sure. Like a cinder block. Yeah. Cinder block. And so yeah. they're not using the masons on this project that were probably our age. This is the first time they put their hands on a brick of that oh, material. Yes. Yeah. And they loved it. I mean, it, and it was, it's, it's sad. It's sad that these guys are in their forties and that's the first time they're, they're working with an Adobe brick and they're on the border. And if you go all the way across the U S Mexico border, that's the history. That's the vernacular. My yeah, grandparents, that's my grandparents one of those. yeah, was Adobe, you know, it's like, yeah, all the way, all the way up. Yeah, I mm. guess it is. Jesus said it, it's not going to ever be, he said this the other day, it's not going to ever be prevalent unless it is on the shelf at Home Depot. Which... It, it's a really, it's a really good thing though, in, in the sense that, um, it, it, I mean, Home Depot will always respond to demand. Yeah. And um, if the demand is there, then they will do the driving of the pricing um, to as low as they can possibly get it for. Regardless of what they sell it for, they, their buy price will be as low. They will drive it and drive it and drive it till it's the lowest possible thing so that they make the profit on it. Um, and with that, you kind of look and you go, okay, so what, what, what is it that would it take to, to have that Adobe available, and the, usually the first thing to get into a marketplace would be that it's um it either brings something innovative that's beyond what the other uh, materiality can do, so it might bring a health benefit or it might bring a um a cost benefit or whatever, and then it's like um do you need to train a workforce to 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 use it? The answer to that one's no. So it's just a choice at the counter, basically. And yeah. so if it could get there and it, it and it can stand on its own values, then there is a chance for it. And wouldn't it be a beautiful thing? Because instead of shipping concrete around the country, um, there might only be available in certain regions as well, just in regions where it's locally produced, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And then that continues that vernacular through that whole region because it's available. Um, you know, when, when you use compressed earth-like block, you said, so what's the difference between that and, say, mud brick um, or rammed earth and, and structural integrity, et cetera, et cetera? Tell us about that. The, the compressed earth block, it's probably depending on the maker, but it, it does use cement, but it's a low cement, it's a low cement content. And... Um, it's, uh, 
I think we're getting about 2,000 psi. Yeah. Um, with the with the traditional uh, Adobe, uh, there's no cement and it's you know it's made on the ground and it's sun dried, so there's not a compression. So mm -hmm. we're getting a very dense brick. It's heavier probably, um, and in in our case, we don't have to use plaster on the exterior. So that, that cement, we have to seal it, but a, a purist would say it's, it's, you know, it's contaminated because it has cement in it. Um, yeah. But, but, it, but uh, yeah, the low maintenance is durability. Yeah. We're, I mean, there's, there's two sides, I think, because industry one part, but then policy, right? So code and jurisdiction is, is forcing uh -huh. engineering of the brick to be stabilized if not stabilized you're you're in a different code that that new mexico has been leading the way with so if you use earthen pure earthen you just have different engineering limitations still doable um but we were we were experimenting with with emma's yeah using the same brick maker that sent these to texas uh we had a client here in town that was actually looking to take the cement out of it yeah and right. so now now you're back. Now you're closer to the mud brick. You're at a maybe 70% sand and silt and then 30% clay. And I think regular Adobe sun dried was somewhere around, do you remember, four to 600 PSI uh -huh. uh, breaking. And then the non cement compressed was pushing 800 to 1200 PSI, depending wow. on the soil. When you add cement, you're up in the 2000s. And so really it just became. You know, it becomes how you engineer it and how you support it. And yeah, um, yeah. We, we had a project we were exploring. We were going too tall with it. So we we're actually then going back to buttressing. And so we were using the bricks on part of the structure to actually buttress the walls because the, the modern moves and beams we're doing were putting too much lateral force. So you, so you buttress the walls so that uh, it, it spreads the load at the footprint. Mm -hmm. Nice. That's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's responding to the material, isn't it? Yeah. That's, that's the thing. That, the material, I think you, you mentioned a lot of the aspects that we love about it, too, is that there is, we call it the weight of the real, um, mm -hmm. and, and that there is, as you said, it, maybe it is the DNA of a caveman, but it is, it is that you're in Earth, and there is something about it that really feels good and right and um it's got to be healthier than most of the buildings that are being built today mm -hmm. i also think there's there's another quality to the mass which is, is the sound of it that you can almost you can almost hear hear the weight of you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah you know the thing you know when we when we travel and we go to places and you know we've got endless examples from matterport to, you know, electronic examples, you know, from your Instagram feed to Matterport to whatever. And the thing that happens when we stand in the space, and maybe it happens different, well, it does happen differently for everyone, but when you stand in a space, you feel the space. And not only do you feel it, like you can actually let all the um, history of the space become a part of that feeling as well. You know, you can... Um, I always sort of do this thing where I go just, especially in old buildings, um, just take a breath and just 
calm it right down, you know, like calm it right down and stop all the influence and just hear it, feel it, the, the temperature of it, the, the sound of it, like you say, um, and hear its ancestry, you know, especially on land as well, the same thing, you know, like just turning off the beta brain and putting on the alpha brain and just seeing what what's really there that's um, beyond the what you visually first take in. And I love that in the building. I love, you know, like getting in there and just trying to work out also, or not even trying to work out, trying to listen to what the building's um, sort of dialogue is and what how it, how it was thought of and it's when it was conceived, you know, and often out of need, but then as the buildings get more modern out of vanity. Um, and so it's a kind of that crossover and, you know, I think more these days, more vanity and more vanity and, you know, the, the things like our Instagram feeds push more vanity in it as well. Um, and then, you know, there's also that the, the part where it's just, creating something that's really innovative um and you see where people have been really innovative and in how they do things you know, i i love them i'm you're gonna have to tell me the name of the house but the house with all the stepping stones that you guys have done and um i you know as as they tear up to going to the door there i was showing uh, my team a picture of it and they're like but how do you not fall down the gaps? You know, like, um, I, I just, I love it as an example of piecing, making art as well as telling a story of building up to the, to, to the doorway as well as, like, it's a game as well, depending on which route you want to take. Um, so it gamifies it. It's, a, it's an art piece. It changes in all the light. Um, and it creates a journey that I can't imagine, even if you live there, it would be a journey that you would get some joy out of every time you approach that from that way. And I go, that's, I, I think it's brilliant. But, yeah, that's that's the genius of something like that. So tell me how that particular, that name of the house and then where people, people can find it then easily and what, what brought you to that piece of... Um, design was there a few things you couldn't shift and you had to cover up or what was it <laughs> uh, the name of the house is the tucson mountain retreat yep and um you know i think if, when you see that you can't see the raw land anymore when we when we first went out to the site there's these two rock outcroppings that define the living space and um that's that's how we saw them that you know there's this saddle that the house, there's a flat spot, and then there's an, an arroyo that runs through it, which is a main animal corridor. But there was a relatively flat area where we, we didn't have to disturb too much land, but the land was falling away gently um, to, the, to the northeast. And when you got there, the rocks are degrading into the land, and in between them, life grows. And, you know... It's, it's the apartment complex for the flora and fauna. Um, gotcha. and, and, and then, you know, when, when we explore our region, we're often in canyons and, and there is this, this play aspect that when you 
cross a, a waterway that you're you're jumping from one stone to the next and yeah. and then there was other thinking and thoughts about engaging engaging the body and slowing one down uh, and really making you focus like let's let's just take it right there where maybe it is pushing a boundary of danger or you got to pay attention and yeah. so yeah by, by, by fo focusing your sort of your psyche you kind of turn off it's like a switch right and it's building up to this dark void and then a big a big, a big heavy door that weighs you know 12 1200 pounds um, so there, there were a lot of factors in that um and and we probably designed it i don't know we we definitely overthought it and over designed it <laughs> i mean at, at one point there was water flowing through it um you know i, I think in its state right now it, it makes complete sense that it's catching the natural seeds and ventilation and the birds are it, uh, vegetation and it's growing naturally and holding naturally and snakes love it and plants love it and, <laughs> the snakes um, love it face i like that it's like you know, we, it, it gave you a voyeuristic because in the summertime they're looking for the coolness and it ends up a snake pit, but you're enough removed that you can now observe these snakes that your steps have captured and then they'll only be there for a little bit, but you're a little safe. You're removed, you know, you're above them. Um, yeah. That, that was an accident, right? We didn't plan that. I was about to say, I'm sure you didn't sit with the client and go, so we're going to put a snake pit <laughs> <laughs> kind of where you walk into the house. Yeah. So it's going to be a fun journey. <laughs> it it, be, it amps up the danger, right? You got to pay attention. Yeah, no, you're going to be, by the time you get in, you're going to be grateful to be inside, but the journey is really going to stimulate you. Never going to forget us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'll remember us every time you go to the door. <laughs> there, there was one aspect because I, I think, you know, we get consumed in the visual of it and it looks more, <clears throat> it looks more aesthetic than functional, probably. Um, but the overthinking on that was really about, we tested it to different body heights and cadences of the walk. Yeah. And as difficult as it looks in the sort of choose your own adventure, you can take a hard path. Mm -hmm. But there is one seamless, smooth, leisurely gait that that you can move up and down those steps when you when you find and, and it's kind of in front of you it unfolds there it's, but. The, it's the it's the way that would be the most natural to travel um but but not necessarily outlined yeah you know the smallest area is four feet the rest are generous up to six feet yeah um you never you never feel like there's a i gotta stutter my step yeah there, it's you, got you perfect can, cadence yeah you can you can sort of get zen and meditative and walking up those steps in a calming slow down you definitely want to slow down mm. uh, i took my kids out when we were completing it they were probably six or seven um and and my little nephew as well and they were flying up and down that thing fearlessly hiding in the cracks jumping down yeah, you know, in my mind, I can see teeth flying out. 
you, you're going, it's okay if it's my kid. Oh no, my wife's going to kill me if it's my kids. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so natural and it was, yeah. it was, it was back to what Cade was saying is they engaged in their playfulness <laughs> without us mm-hmm. coaxing it on. And it's like being out in nature. I mean, that that's, you go sl- on a slippery rock jumping in the Creek and you're yep. going to take a, you're going to wipe out. I think, I think absolutely. As we talk about this, there was the other the other aspect that we were hoping to engage in that project, and we we worked on it a lot, which was the sense of smell. and And I don't know if you picked up on it when you're in El Paso or when you've been in the American deserts, but the there's this bush that we call creosote. It's actually oh, uh, sure. chap- chap- yeah. when it yeah. rains or when you brush up against it, it just emanates this smell of the desert, and that's that's actually what's growing in between these. So now as you move up, you're surrounded by this fragrant. Of the, of the, of the desert. Yeah. And so, you know. That was something um, when I was out, out, uh, you know, West here in the desert this um, last time, uh, a few weeks back was, you know, remembering to tear a piece off a bush, you know, tear, tear some leaves and just smell each piece and we were we were walking into one of the canyons and um there was a a party in front of in front of us and coming the other way in the end um who were making a video of for for you know tourist video anyway they had a guide um that was sort of like taking them down and he said uh, at one point we were standing waiting while they were filming some piece of it, and he, he had them leaning on a tree with their air, and um, he said, you can hear the water of the creek below this, but it's, you know, metres down below, but we can hear it through the tree. Wow. And, um, yeah, just things like that, that otherwise we'd walk down there, it's a dry creek bed, yeah, keep going, yeah, get, get, you know, like, and then also, um, and that probably was when it switched on so much for me to just, slow down enough and and take a leaf off things and get the smell of that leaf and and then you know like you say like sense that landscape with its smell you know is it as the sun was heating up on some of the landscape and um yeah there's so much that gets missed and then that happens seasonally as well mm-hmm. you know um i always think of bird song like that as well you know if you can sit quietly enough for long enough that the birds come and then you suddenly get this other dimension um, or, or it might not just be birds. It might just be whatever else comes as well. Hmm. But uh, that, that part of being able to bring that into the structure or around the structure like that, I really love that. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that I love the fact that you so overthought it at the start because that, that's like, that's really cool because from there, then you can start pairing back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know the 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 over complexity, and then just pair it back to pair it back to pair it back, and then you end up with this game space that becomes a snake pit. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I. It's one of those stories that is going to be a fun story to tell. You know, so like the only thing we've got to consider here is 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 there, have you seen any snakes on your property? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Add scorpions and a Gila monsters in there. <laughs> uh, that's brilliant. I've got a I've got a last question for you guys, and you can answer it separately or together. 
Um, it's one of my most favorite. Actually, I've got two last questions. First one is, is for any budding design architect, whether they've got, whether they're an architect or whether they're a designer or whether they're just, you know, like really young and trying to decide whether this is a path that would be something they should do. Give me a couple of points that you think really just crystallize um, what, what they should look at beyond what seems obvious. That's a good question. I think, I think a lot of this conversation has kind of been hovering around it. And I think for me, and I'll, I'll let Kate answer as well. I think, I think observing and being out in nature in our, in our natural environment um, and sort of remembering that we're human and we have these sensories and, and uh, we have this deep curiosity and wonder. And I think keep those, keep those alive. And, and I feel like going out into nature and exploring that, aspect of our world um, helps to keep that alive. And, you know, from my own experience, so I'm biased there. I would hope it makes one a better architect and, and observer of human life and life in general. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's hard to follow up, but you know, I think there's so many avenues in design and there's so much good design. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think as a young, as a student, I think the, the hardest thing for me sometimes was to believe in myself, like, right? And so, because you're getting critiqued all the time or, or you're getting this onslaught and, and we didn't have it so much, but of this information overload. And so to find your interest, what are you interested in as an individual? And then, and then dig in, dig into it and, and see what it's about. And maybe you find out you're not interested and there's another avenue or you, it just le leads to another discovery. And I think, I think like the, the, time, the time of being a young designer or a young student when there's maybe less responsibility of owning a business or like having the time to think and dig in and really start to investigate and research and, and just sort of immerse yourself in the thing you're interested in it, it, and you make your art and your art will find its audience it, it's a really beautiful way of putting that as well like I, I, you know that the high curiosity that deep curiosity and then you make your art and your art will find its audience um i've just been reading a, a book um by seth godin which is called the practice shipping creative work and uh it's he says exactly that thing he says you know pretty much the difference between um making it and shipping it is shipping it means it's for it's for sale and you and you're responding to a marketplace and it will find you or won't find you um depending on most people won't never get found because they won't ship it mm -hmm. but then when you take that step of yep we're in the marketplace um and also i love that piece about you know you were saying as a young there's so much creativity and there's so much great design and stuff and um, there is so little responsibility. And so digging in when there's so little responsibility makes a big difference to it. You know, before, before you, I always think of the weight of responsibility when you're going to spend 
seriously some whether it's a lot or a little money you know whether the budget's a hundred thousand or you know ten million dollars to the whoever it is it's a lot of money mm-hmm. and you're going to ask them to come on a journey of faith with you um I think that that's the biggest weight of responsibility that I always uh, always I wouldn't say it hangs over me but it's like it's on my shoulder the whole time that um yeah it doesn't really matter like how much it is but it's going to change their the way they behave and it's also going to come out of their bank and go into somebody else's bank um you know that's that's the other thing and you're going to be responsible for part of that journey or all of that journey mm-hmm. um, I've got so many more questions but um I've got one last one now we're gonna to have to do more of this um <laughs> And this is one of my favorite questions I ask a lot of people. So you've got one last project. Um, and I'm going to make it more comp. Oh, no, I won't. Um, you've got one last project. This is it. Can't do it again. Can't do any more after this. After this, you. this is the last one that you can ever complete. Um, and it's your choice. It's your choice what it will be, how it will be done, um, who your client might be or not. You might be the client. What would you choose to do? What would be this this one last thing that's an accumulation of what you want to be remembered when they go, oh, yeah, and this was the last thing they did. Nice, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> I've had some brilliant answers to this, like <laughs> such a such a varied thing. So go for it. <laughs> uh, do we get two since there's two yeah, of us? <laughs> yeah, you can have two. I was gonna. What I was gonna say is, this, one of you has to say, "Well, okay, I'm gonna be the lead on this one, and you're gonna be you're gonna have to work for me." But I was. Gonna, I went. That's, <laughs> that's being too complex. That would be easy. <laughs> I know that would be easy. So you can do two. You can do yeah. two, but then you've got to both agree that you'd be happy to support the other in it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Man, I have not ever thought in that frame of mind. That's going to take a second. I, th- I think, and, and I know as soon as I say this, I would like to revise my thoughts. <laughs> but uh, I think I, I, would, I would say it would, be, it would be something that blurred, it blurred the boundary maybe towards art with less function, like less function of what we understand architecture being and more, more of the bane of maybe you know, say a monument to light and humanity and a place where someone can go where they close their eyes and they open it, open their eyes and, and the, the space is so dynamic and breathing of, of light and air and sensory experience that you feel it and see it, that it changes you. So it, it's almost, it's almost like a elusive chase, but but something more in more in a religious experience without the religion. Sure. The spiritual experience. Spiritual yeah. experience, you know, where where we're just tapping into the essence of, of what you were saying maybe earlier is just closing, closing, calming down, breathing in and 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 being present mm. Mm. You know, with the elements. And 
I don't know if that's a good answer, but you know, it's they're that, all good answers. Yeah, <laughs> that that would be hard to follow. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think where I where I lean to the last thing I would do. You know, one of one of our colleagues here in in, in town, another architect, had said a phrase that that I just read. He did an interview, and he said, "You know, in nature, there's space all around us. It's already there." And and our job as architects, these are his words, not mine. Mm-hmm. Our job as architects is to um, sort of enhance or or make known that proportion, that space, that experience. And I thought that was a really poetic way to look at it. I mean, I think we're all trying to do it in our, in our own ways, but the way you articulated it made me think. And so the last thing I would do probably, probably lens because Kate and I talk about these non-function spaces a lot. Uh-huh. You know, if we had money to burn. I'm going to build a space to nothing. And in that nothingness, we can find ourselves. We, we talk about these things a lot and I might lean more towards some bit of natural restoration right in 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 our world now we're talking of climate change we're talking about consumption we're talking about development and and preservation of the wild or wilderness yeah um, and right now i think for us we we get asked a question a lot like where do you, where do you see yourselves or the future of architecture mm-hmm. and i think if the spaces we can create can make not just the cultural and built environment more beautiful, but if it can contribute in positive ways to the natural environment. That if the garden outgrows the structure, if sure. if we bring water back to the dry desert rivers, mm-hmm. then I guess that'd be the the dream or legacy or or space I would like to have had a hand in in producing, right? Because what generations now get to value that restored watershed in the desert or, or bring natural shade where there wasn't before, which brings the birds and brings the wildlife. And yeah. Yeah. That restorative nature of, of, um, of something. So as a combination of those two things, you know, restoring something and then putting a built structure that, um, not necessarily demands, because that would be the wrong word, inspires to be present and sets a journey to be present um, without any expectation or judgment over, you know, what somebody classes as being present as well. That would be a pretty amazing, a pretty amazing thing to have and something that's, you know, if, if, if you could go there it said you know not necessarily religious but spiritual like so that, that it's the presence thing so that and 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 also so connected with just the elements that is there yeah yeah that's probably a canyon somewhere close by and you need a water fountain you know yes. <laughs> it already exists yeah, yeah yeah parks and wildlife have built that one yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really, you know, like, again, it's actually about not necessarily making a monument. Um, like you said, like, it, it's more about making something that is of, the, of its space, 
which is the aesthetic of what your work is anyway. So something of its space. Um, great answer. Great answer. I, I always enjoy it because it is, it's something that very rarely we even consider, um, especially, you know, when, when you're younger, you're like, you know, hell, I've got years to do this stuff, you know. But if somebody was going to stop you dead in your tracks now and um, you had to look back past all the work you'd done and you didn't even get to do another one and you had to put a pinpoint on the one that meant the most or, or was the, the closest to your heart, um, if you could do that and you could look through your whole body of work and went, oh, they're all equal, you would have, you would have had your, your, your joy journey, your, joy, your journey, like you were saying about um, to a young person who's studying, you know, finding that that path and, and discovering it and digging in. And if you could do that and it, they all had that specialness to them, then you would have actually delivered more than you could have otherwise, you know. it's It would be the ultimate delivery, I think. Mm. Yeah. Guys, I've got to thank you so much. That was inspiring. I've got to... Big page of notes here. Well, obviously, post all your socials and stuff as well. Um, and I'd love to get back to talk about more things. Maybe one time uh, a, a specific project, especially from the construction, the design and build point of view. Um, that would be really fun. Uh, yeah. big, and, and, and that around materiality, I think, you know, is like, it'd be really beautiful. Yeah. Let's yeah. do it. We have oh, a man, we'll book it in. Thank, Thank you. you. It was a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, thank you as well. Cheers, man. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of them, someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.